Last time, we looked at what has come to be referred to as the Last Supper. Jesus and the 12 disciples gathered together in a room in the city of Jerusalem on a Thursday evening to eat the Passover meal. And while eating this meal, two significant events took place. First, while they were eating and enjoying one another's company, Jesus, out of nowhere, said that one of them was going to betray him to the people who want to kill him. It was shocking for them to hear that one of them would be willing to do such a terrible thing. Well, a little later into the Passover meal, Jesus then took bread and he broke it and he passed it out among his disciples, telling them that this bread represented his body, which would be given for them. And he took a cup of wine and he passed it out among them, telling them that it was the blood of new covenant, his blood given for them to establish this new covenant between God and humanity, making real a new kind of relationship between God and us. And we just took communion a little bit earlier in the service this morning, and Christians all over the world have been commemorating this final meal of Jesus and its meaning in their communion ceremonies ever since then. Well, this meal that they had was a very solemn time. There was a heaviness in the room. The disciples, they didn't understand at the time most of what Jesus was talking about. It was really very confusing and unsettling for them. At the end of the meal, they headed out of the city of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives to spend the night. And as the story of the life of Jesus has progressed, it has become more and more focused. In the early chapters of the book of Matthew, the story is told with broad sweeping brushstrokes. Stories are grouped together that may have had weeks or even months between them in time, but with Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in Matthew chapter 21, the story has slowed down considerably. The pace of the story slows down even more when we get to the Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26. Rather than looking at the last days in the life of Jesus, we are now actually looking at the last hours in the life of Jesus. And as we begin our study today, I want us to let that thought sink into our minds that we are looking at, we are talking about the final hours of the life of Jesus. Flipping your Bible over to Matthew chapter 26, and we're picking the story up in verse 31 today, 26, 31. As Jesus and his disciples leave the city after the Passover meal, and they make their way to the Mount of Olives, he says to them in verse 31, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus, he tells his disciples, uh, technology sometimes is helpful, sometimes it's not so, huh? That's what he said. Jesus, he tells the disciples that they will all fall away. They will all desert him. They will all abandon him. They will all turn away from him. 
Jesus, he quotes here from Zechariah 13, 7, showing that this had been something predicted hundreds of years beforehand. The shepherd in this prophecy is Jesus. The sheep in the prophecy are his disciples. And when the shepherd is attacked and struck down, it says his sheep will be scattered. Without their shepherd to guide and protect them, they run and they hide. This prophecy quoted by Jesus, it, it helps us to see that the abandonment of Jesus by his disciples will not be a deliberate, premeditated act on their part. Instead, it will be a reaction to their beloved shepherd, Jesus, being attacked and killed. They don't have the strength to stand strong on their own. They need their shepherd to give them strength, to protect them, to watch over them, to lead them. Without their shepherd, these sheep will be lost and confused and frightened. And it's still true of his sheep in our day. Without our shepherd Jesus, we can easily find ourselves wandering over cliffs and being lunch for the wolves. We need our shepherd to give us strength, to protect us, to lead us. Well, I want us to try to put ourselves into the moment here and imagine what all of this is sounding like to the disciples. Remember, they don't have the benefit of hindsight that we do. They don't know how the story will eventually end. Remember, too, they don't understand much of what Jesus is telling them. They have a very different idea about the Messiah and his mission than Jesus does. They are still operating under the idea that the Messiah is going to be this great conqueror who has come to overthrow Israel's enemies. The idea of a suffering and dying Messiah is completely out of the question for the disciples. The coming of the Messiah is supposed to mean victory. Everyone is supposed to be fist-bumping and high-fiving each other when Messiah comes. So, operating with that kind of understanding of things, imagine how this all looks to the disciples. It has been one piece of very confusing and bad news by Jesus after another. During the Passover meal, he tells them, one of you is going to betray me. Later, during that same meal, he passes them bread, says, this is my body given for you. He passes a cup of wine. He says, this is my blood poured out for you. Well, none of that sounds good to them in the moment. Now he says to them, you're all going to fall away and abandon me. They're going to strike me, the shepherd, and you, the sheep, are going to be scattered. This is all very bad from their perspective. This is hope-crushing, world-ending stuff for them. The one that they have followed for the past three years, believing he's the Messiah, is now telling them some of the worst possible things that they can imagine happening. It appears like Jesus gives them a glimmer of hope when he says, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. But that, that only sounds like good news to us because we know the whole story, knowing that Jesus will resurrect from the dead. But for the disciples at this point, this just adds to their confusion. He says, after I have risen, 
the idea of Jesus rising from the dead is something that they don't understand. It's not something that they have been embracing up to this point. He has talked with them about it before, but they still don't understand what he's talking about. The thing that sticks in their mind whenever he talks about rising from the dead is the dead part. Not the rising part. The, the part about Jesus dying is what they hear, and that's something that greatly disturbs them every time he brings it up. He says, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Well, that's confusing for them too. They have finally arrived in the capital city of Jerusalem. They've been operating under the assumption that this means the time has arrived for Jesus to step forward and establish his rule as Messiah King. There had been this huge reception that Jesus received when he first entered Jerusalem. A few days earlier on Palm Sunday, they gave him a king's welcome as he came into the city. What was all that about if they're not going to stay here in the capital city of Jerusalem? See, Galilee is where they started this journey. Why go back there, they're thinking. Going back to to, to Galilee, it feels like moving backward to them. Why meet Jesus in Galilee? Is he leaving them? Are they going to be separated from Jesus in some way? See, nothing about what Jesus is saying here sounds good to them in the moment either. Things are getting stranger and more confusing. None of this is making sense to them. It all sounds very bad. Verse 33, Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. So Peter, he's been listening long enough. He can't take any more of it. It's time for someone to step up and show some courage, and he's just the guy to do it. So he boldly proclaims, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. You know, Abraham Lincoln is credited with saying, "'Tis better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt." We've seen Peter do this same kind of thing before. Back in Matthew 16, Jesus was talking to his disciples about how he would be rejected by the leaders in Jerusalem and killed. And Peter took Jesus aside and he began to straighten him out about these things. Peter didn't want to hear any talk about Jesus being rejected and killed. Jesus was going to be the king. He was the Messiah, the son of David, and he was going to set things right for Israel and the world. But Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Well, Peter's back at it again now, thinking he understands better than Jesus about what needs to be done. Do you ever feel like that? You feel like you know what needs to be done better than the Lord does. I think we all have moments like that in our life. We know what we want. We know how we would like it to be accomplished. And our prayers are really little more than an attempt to get God to see things from our point of view and agree to take 
our chosen course of action. And when the Lord doesn't respond the way that we want him to, and it starts to look like there's going to be some waiting and some disappointment and some suffering involved, well, we want to take things into our own hands and make it happen. And we respond like Peter does. Even if all fall away, I never will. In other words, I don't like what you're saying, Lord. It doesn't fit into the hopes and dreams that I have. I'm going to make it happen the way I think it should happen. You're not going to be rejected and killed. We are not going to abandon you. I'm not going to let any of that happen. Jesus says, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus sees through Peter's bold front right into his heart. Please believe me, Peter. You're going to abandon me, just like all of the others. In fact, you're going to deny me three times this very night. What Jesus didn't say, but might have been thinking, was something like this. Peter, I wish it were so. I wish it were the way you want it to be, with you standing courageously by my side through all of the difficulties that lay ahead. I would love to have a faithful friend to share this burden with, but it's not to be. It was written long ago that I would have to face this alone. It has to be this way, Peter. Verse 35, but Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. So Peter, he, he refuses to accept what Jesus is saying and declares he will never disown Jesus, even if he has to die for him. All the other disciples said the same. Peter, he's not alone in refusing to accept what Jesus is saying. They're, they all plead undying loyalty to Jesus, even to the point of death, if needed be. In this moment, Peter and the other disciples, they really mean what they're saying. They believe they're willing to die with Jesus. They believe they will never disown him. But our best intentions don't always find their way into our actions, do they? As much as the disciples want to stick by Jesus through whatever is coming, they're all going to abandon him just like he's telling them they will. We've all faced the heartbreak that comes from failing to keep a promise that we had every intention of keeping. I'm so grateful that Jesus is bigger than my failures, that his love is bigger than me. He always keeps his promises, even when I don't keep mine. I think of 2 Timothy 2.13 when it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Verse 36 says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
Stay here and keep watch with me. Gethsemane is a garden located on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. The word Gethsemane means olive press. This area is believed to have once been the location of an olive press that was used for extracting oil from the olives harvested in that area. This garden was not a little patch of ground used to grow vegetables like we might find in our own backyard. Instead, this is more like what we would think of as a large public park with lots of trees and other greenery. It was a place that Jesus and his disciples often stayed while they're in the vicinity of Jerusalem. It was apparently one of Jesus' favorite places to be alone. Jesus is now facing the most difficult test of his life going through the crucifixion, and he chooses to go to Gethsemane to pray. It says he's sorrowful and troubled. And Mark's telling says he is deeply distressed. We begin to get a sense of this deep, overwhelming agony of soul that Jesus is experiencing. He takes his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and he leads them to a more private place in the garden and says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's not possible for us to really fully understand how Jesus is feeling in these moments, but but try to imagine the the most stressful, disturbing, unsettling, frightening moment in your life and multiply that a thousand times and you'll begin to get the picture. Jesus literally has the weight of the whole world on his shoulders. He knows that every human being that has ever lived and ever will live is depending upon him. Jesus tells these three men to keep watch while he goes a little farther to pray alone. What are they to be watching for? Jesus may be asking them to stay awake with him, to share in the agony he is going through to provide a bit of moral support. Jesus may want them to keep a lookout for the people that he knows are coming to arrest him. He may mean both. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The cup that Jesus is referring to is the abandonment, the torture, the death, the wrath of God that will be poured out upon him as the sacrifice for the sins of the human race. As a man, he pleads with God to remove this cup of suffering from him. He doesn't want to go through with the suffering that's coming. There's no no thing in any of our lives that compares with the magnitude of this struggle that Jesus is facing. Someone might say, it would be easy for him to face it because he is God. And I would say in response that only Jesus, the God-man, would have the strength to face such a test as this. No mere human being would have been able to do what Jesus did. Jesus knew and he understood the power of God and how to use it. 
but he also knew and understood what was necessary to rescue humanity from sin and death. He knew that it was not an act of power that was needed, but an act of submission that was needed to break the curse of death that held our race captive. And so Jesus, he prays that all-important prayer for our sakes, yet not as I will, but as you will. The ultimate act of submission on the part of Jesus saves us. The innocent willingly dying for the guilty. Verse 40, then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So when Jesus, he returns to the three disciples, he finds them sleeping. It's late into the night by this time. Nevertheless, Jesus had asked them to stay awake and keep watch. Luke gives us some insight into why the disciples are sleeping beyond simply being very late at night. In Luke twenty-two forty-five, 45, it says, when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Exhausted from sorrow. When we, when we think about all that has happened this night, we can see why these guys are exhausted from sorrow. Peter singled out when Jesus comes back and he asks him, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? Peter had said he would be the one among them all who would not bail on Jesus. But here he is, too weak to stay awake and watch for an hour. Jesus tells them to watch and pray so they won't fall into temptation or they won't falter in testing. A tremendous test is coming for them. When Jesus is taken, they are going to doubt and question everything they have believed up to this point. They're going to face a darkness in their soul like nothing they have ever faced before. They're going to need strengthening from God to get through all of that. It's going to be far beyond their own natural abilities. They need to pray for God's help. Jesus says, after all of that, though, he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh, the body, is weak. He knows these guys want to stay awake and support him. That's their desire, but their body's demand for sleep is overcoming their desire to do otherwise. I'm so grateful that Jesus understands us. He knows our desires and our weaknesses. Psalm 103, 14, it says, For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. I like that. I'm glad he remembers that I'm just dust. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It describes our struggle in this life. We have a desire to do what's right, but we lack the strength, the fortitude to do it. We cycle around and around fighting with ourselves. Our desire to do right fights against the pull of our sinful nature. Paul, he describes that struggle for us in his letter of Romans, in Romans 7, 15. 
I know you, uh, many of you have read this before. It's a good reminder for us. In 7.14, he writes, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do... What I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yes, indeed, amen. Matthew 26, 42, it says, He, Jesus, went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. So we see Jesus go away to pray. He returns. He finds the disciples sleeping again. And there are two things that uh, for us to observe here. The first is the utter aloneness of Jesus. None of the people that we would think would offer support at a time like this are giving him any support. They're not strong enough to even stay awake, much less give Jesus any meaningful help. He's all alone in this. And second, we see the intense battle that Jesus is engaged in as he fights through the spiritual and emotional testing. Luke's telling of the story says that the pressure Jesus is facing is so intense that his sweat is like drops of blood falling to the ground. Forty-five. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So Judas has arrived with a group of armed men from the Jewish religious authorities intent on taking Jesus into custody. Jesus says, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. The Son of God, who made the world's, has humbled himself, setting aside his power and glory, and is allowing 
sinners, sinful humanity, to take him into custody, to humiliate him, to mock him, torture him, falsely accuse him, treat him like an awful criminal, and then to kill him. We're going to stop there this morning. In closing, uh, I want to leave us with a reflection from the first two verses that we read today. Matthew 26, verses 31 and 32. said, Jesus told his disciples, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. There are two things that Jesus tells his disciples here. He tells them they're all going to fall away, and he tells them he's going to bring them back after he's risen. These are important truths for us, too. We, We all fall away, meaning we are all too weak on our own to save ourselves. To use the words that Jesus used with the three disciples who kept falling asleep in the garden. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have the desire to do the right thing, but none of us can do it on our own. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the perfection of God. And we all keep sinning and all keep falling short of the perfection of God. Who will rescue us from this awful cycle? The answer is, is in the second truth that Jesus gives us here. He goes ahead of us to Galilee, figuratively speaking. Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He died for us and he came back to life for us. Jesus went through all of this agony and death for you and me. What has he asked us to do to receive what he's done for us? We need to trust him the same way the disciples needed to trust him. We need to believe he died for you and your sins. Not someone else's, but yours and mine. We need to ask him to forgive us and to save us, to give us a new life. We need to leave our old life and follow him. You're going to make many mistakes along the way, just like the disciples did. But we trust in him, not in ourself. He has the power to save us. We don't have the power to save us. He's bigger than our sins. His love overcomes all. We trust in him now and always for what he has done. 